It's a bit like taking a car from London to Edinburgh, lots of routes to go down, but the biggest route or the best route is usually the motorway, and that's the one that has the legislation and the standards. Hello, and welcome to the sixth and final episode of season one of the Data Barracks Business Continuity Podcast. We began the series with a proposition that disaster recovery and business continuity had an unfair reputation as complicated, difficult, and boring. I've tried to dispel that notion over the last five episodes by talking to the experts that do it for a living, and for the most part, they've agreed. Behind the lofty jargon and abstract principles, continuity and recovery are inherently human activities with simple goals at their centre, to keep people safe and businesses operational. So, I thought it might be a fitting end to this introductory exploration of the topic to start re-acknowledging some of this perceived complexity in order to see how the fundamentals hold up under scrutiny. So, in this episode, we're going to take a look at a topic that, to the uninitiated, often represents the more off-putting and complex aspects of continuity. Compliance. Now, compliance is a huge topic that applies uniquely to different industries and organisations depending on the legislation and accepted best practices they're subject to. For continuity, the compliance standard the experts referred to time and again was ISO 22301 for Business Continuity Management Systems from the International Standards Office. Now the name here is important. ISO 22301 does not specify what business continuity is and is not. It's not a step-by-step guide to make your business more resilient against disruption. Instead, it's a set of requirements that describe a management system. Now once you fulfill those requirements, you'll have all of the internal infrastructure and mechanisms required to maintain a good level of business continuity throughout your organisation. But ultimately, it's still up to you to actually do that. All of the tasks themselves, the planning, the testing, the measuring, the communicating, all of it, it's almost incidental to complying with ISO 22301. As Mel Gosling points out, it's entirely feasible that an organisation could certificate to 22301 and be no more resilient for it. Let's put it this way, you can implement um, a standard like ISO, the ISO standards, mm-hmm. um, and not be able to recover a thing. Um, it's the same with a lot of management system standards. The standards are about what you do, not the outcome. Okay, So it's okay. a standard telling you the things you should do to get to the outcome. It's The best way to give an analogy is um, look at a, another type of standard. Take the JPEG standard. Okay, um, The standard specifies what a JPEG file looks like so somebody can pick it up and use it. Right? Uh, it doesn't specify how you produce that JPEG file. Whereas management system standards don't tell you the output, but they do tell you how you produce it. You've got a standard for a screw or a, a nail or something. You know, mm. it's, It tells you it's made of this material and it looks like this. Okay, Not how you actually manufacture it. But you read the ISO standards for all things like quality, uh, IT, uh, IT security even. Um, they tend to be very, very long on how you do something um, and what you do, not long on the outcome. What it means is you can follow the standards, you can be compliant, um, and you can have useless business continuity because the sure. proof proof will only be when something happens, won't it? This is where a lot of box-ticking organisations fall down. The value in certification with standards is not in the piece of paper you get at the end, but in the processes involved. To put it another way, mindlessly passing an annual audit of ISO 22301 means you're good at getting audited, not that the organisation is inherently resilient. For Vicky Gavin at The Economist, 
The reverse was true. While she's not legally obligated to comply with any continuity regulations, she's arrived at many of the requirements on her own terms as a byproduct of the good continuity practices she's put in place. Importantly, her continuity planning was never dictated by compliance requirements, but rather stayed closely anchored to the specific needs of the economist. So as far as I'm concerned, the scope should not be determined by compliance. Right. Compliance is a byproduct of doing your job right. Um, many, many institutions look at it the other way. They start from compliance. Let's get that tick in the box. One of the things that attracted me to working at The Economist is that at, when I joined, it was an unregulated environment. There were no regulatory requirements to be met. They choose to do business continuity because it is the right thing to do. It's the right way to run a business. It is the thing that you need in place to ensure that your business remains a going concern. Um, and so there wasn't any of this, well, if you don't do it, it's a sackable offense, or you know, the regulators say we have to, so it doesn't really matter what you... It forced me to really think about why do we do business continuity? And, and be sensible about it rather than just uttering the, you know, because the regulators say so. And, and I think whether you're working in a regulated environment or an unregulated environment, being able to explain your business continuity program in terms of the benefits to the business is the best way forward. Um, and when you're doing things in the best interest of the business, compliance happens. Um, yes, I. I do check to make sure that we're in compliance with our regulations, but I haven't had to do anything special to my program in order to comply. Good continuity ideally exceeds regulatory requirements, which is why a box-ticking attitude generally produces inferior results. Because the regulator isn't going to do the hard work for you. You get out what you put in. Regulations aren't going to identify your operational risks. What they do instead is mandate the creation of a management system that identifies those risks when properly used. And, as Vicky went on to point out, a lot of that management system is simple common sense. The regulators do not require anything that's not sensible. And in general, I mean, this isn't true of every single regulator, so this is a broad generalization. The regulations say you must have a business continuity plan and it must. Um, control the risks that you have in your organization. And then you define how you're doing that. And as long as you've taken the time and effort to say, these are our risks, this is how we're controlling them and documenting all of that, it all comes together. It, it's, not, it's not magic. And I didn't have to start with the regulations and say, the regulations say we must do this. The regulations rarely say your business continuity plan has to be three pages long, it has to have this in it, it has to have that in it. That's, that's not what the regulations say. And this is how so many people, when they, they use that tick box exercise, end up in trouble. Because you can have a piece of paper that says business continuity plan on the top and a list of names and phone numbers, and you've met the regs. Is it gonna help you recover? Probably not. And so it, it's about understanding and helping the business understand the value of planning. Now, John Robinson of Anoni shared this view of standards, particularly those from ISO, that they aren't prescriptive step-by-step -step instructions on becoming resilient. In fact, he went a step further 
to suggest they're best used as broad templates, against which you can check pre-existing continuity activities in order to identify gaps retrospectively. But the thing, the, the trick with a standard, the thing about a standard, particularly ISO, is it, it really is, it's best designed almost as an audit mechanism, whereby you come along after someone's done something, drop this checking framework over the top of it, and see which bits are and aren't covered under the framework. That tells you what you missed. It doesn't tell you how to build it in the first place necessarily. You can infer from it how you should have built it in the first place, but it, I wouldn't use it as my design. I wouldn't start from there. I would start looking at it and thinking, it's giving me a lot of pointers, but it's not designed that way. That standard has to fit every organization on the planet potentially, and therefore it cannot be specific. So you need a really smart mechanism uh, that takes you from nowhere to somewhere and then apply the standard. And I think those mechanisms are the things that are really hard to pin down. Now, 22301 didn't arrive overnight. Whilst much of it might seem like common sense today, it takes time for compliance to reflect established best practices, if only because those best practices have to be defined and popularised first. Regulating crisis management, as it was originally referred to, has been an iterative process, and there's been a transition over the years from industry-specific regulation to trans-industry standards like ISO 22301. Now this isn't to say we've somehow arrived at a final destination. Standards necessarily evolve over time, in parallel with the changing commercial, legal and technology landscapes they refer to. I think they, they do age. They age because, not least because, of technology. Uh, if, you look, if you went back 10 years, what was required of continuity then is probably much more than is required now because of the absolute resilience of technology, the way it's growing, the way the, way the cloud works, the way we take reliability almost for granted. It's just part of what we do. It's part of the way we think and assume things. And I think the standards probably have to focus on it differently. So the emphasis changes. So what's the upshot of all that? Well, regulating business continuity planning is hard. There are too many variables between organisations to create a meaningful, singular definition of best practice. 22301 is effective because it instead captures a universally replicable structure within which to create and maintain your own best practices. How you deploy those is up to you. Now whilst many organisations are legally obligated to certificate with certain standards, several people I spoke to mentioned that elective compliance could provide some real value as well. I spoke to John Robinson about what kinds of things motivate an organisation towards compliance. The driving forces are the regulator absolutely demands it. They can't trade without it. They must be able to demonstrate it. It is absolutely explicit in what you must do. Secondly, all the counterparties, anyone you deal with, won't deal with you unless they know that you're there in the long term. So this, it's a statement for them, first of all, of compliance, which they have to have, and secondly, for longevity. In other words, they're always going to be there. We can trust you. If we send money to you, you're going to be able to honour whatever agreements we have. Insurance. Insurers increasingly now push people down this route because they know, uh, well, if you haven't been doing it, you're not exercising governance. You're not doing the things that are expected of you uh, by your stakeholders, one of which is the insurer. I think also you've got, you've got things like just generally the perception of the organisation as one that is here to stay, that is, that is top tier, so that it's, it's a part of the raft of standards compliance that mature organisations try to achieve. 
It's a series of stamps they put across their letterhead. It's a series of conversations they have. It saves them time bidding for business. And I think that that, that is another big deal. Uh, this isn't necessarily something that organisations who are buying your services, it's not something they must have, but it's something that will disqualify you from a tender if you don't have it, if you don't have it in the right way. Paul Butcher of Fujitsu has also seen standards become more commonly relied upon as a kind of shorthand to demonstrate reliability and longevity to customers, suppliers, and the wider marketplace. Now, Paul mentions a British standard here. He's referring to BS2599, which was one of ISO 22301's main predecessors. I mean, standards have been, uh, I suppose, getting more and more key over the years at um, trying to get some standardisation that companies can be benchmarked. Uh, against. Uh, we saw the British standard uh, come into play and whilst uh, a number of companies got certified against that initially it never really took off in any great numbers. Um, however the the ISO standard being an in international one has seen uh, I suppose much more of a, a take up not only in the UK but obviously uh, globally as well. Um, the downside I've, I've seen and it happened a little bit with with the, the British standard was that, uh, should we say, a Sainsbury's was using a one of these logistic companies to ferry its um, goods around, around the country. And, and as part of selecting that company, they wanted that company to be uh, 25999 uh, certified. So that company got certified, uh, but only for that element that they did for Sainsbury's, nothing else. So the rest of their continuity was uh, was not really up to up to scratch, but that bit that they did for Sainsbury's was uh, spot on, you know. So, uh, and that's what we see to to a certain degree with uh, two two three zero one. There are elements of an organisation that will just well, we'll just certify head office, or we'll just certify branch, or we'll just certify that part of the business. This is a really important caveat, particularly if you're using a standard like ISO two two three zero one as a requirement when selecting suppliers. Despite its reputation. 22301 isn't synonymous with good continuity. It's not just that the standard by itself is no guarantee of good practice. It's also that, as Paul points out, large businesses can certificate certain departments or functions in isolation. For Mel Gosling, there's only one thing that provides true assurances that both you, your supplier, and the ways in which your businesses interact with each other can survive disruption, and that's to run joint exercises. One of the things I'd encourage people to do is do joint exercises with their uh, key partners so that you can run an exercise and see how you both cope. Some organisations get copies of suppliers' plans or go and audit them or check against standards in terms of what they're doing. But at the end of the day, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Until you can actually touch and feel that these people can recover, uh, then you'll never really know. And the best way to do that, apart from having a real incident, is to uh, run joint exercises with them. Having said that, Provided you investigate precisely how and where 22301 is applied throughout potential suppliers, it can still provide some degree of reassurance, both to end customers and as a user of supplied services. Uh, what 22301 does says, yep, you know, we've demonstrated that we have training and awareness, we've got plans in place, we've got the processes and the procedures in place, we've got senior management commitment, we got buying throughout the uh, the organisation. So it's it's something that gives a degree of confidence to that company that's looking to, to outsource its services. So effectively a yeah, safe pair of hands. So it gives us that advantage over other outsourced uh, companies. 
you know, because they don't have that to wave at uh, people, whereas uh, they'd have to sort of demonstrate it in, in other ways. Um, like a lot of certification against various standards, whether it's quality standards, whether it's health and safety standards, everything else, you've, you've got to demonstrate to the auditors that you've got something in place. So you've got to maintain uh, your documentation, you've got to go through that set process to, to have those, those in place. So it does take time and effort. Um, you're very small companies, have they got the time and resource to put, put something like that in, in place? Maybe, uh, maybe not. Now, it's one thing to fulfil compliance requirements on paper, but demonstrating that to regulatory auditors is where things are really put to the test. There's a reputation in many organisations that being audited is always a painful experience, that you're being scrutinised by the big bad regulator who's waiting for you to make a mistake. For the most part, this isn't true. Regulators aren't trying to trip you up, they're simply checking against a framework. Even where regulators are assessing liability after an incident, their goal isn't to meticulously scour a checklist of compliance metrics and try to catch you out. Everyone has incidents. What matters is that you demonstrably took continuity and resilience seriously prior to the disruption, and put robust mechanisms in place to anticipate and mitigate against risks. There's, there's a certain degree of fear within the industry of the regulator, and I think it's self-driving that uh, I've, I've spoken to a couple of CEOs within um, private banking and things like that, and their interpretation of what the regulators require is actually much tighter than that that's actually stipulated. So I think the information as it goes up through the organization is, is getting filtered out and that, uh, that at the top, they're actually driving a harder standard than that's actually required. That senior buy-in that Stuart's talking about can be one of the most challenging aspects of rolling out continuity across the organisation. We've explored the difficulties in securing time and resources from key budget owners and gatekeepers a number of times throughout the series already, so I was interested to hear that ISO 22310 can help with this. The standard explicitly requires approval and sign-off from senior management on the stated risks and recovery plans formed earlier in the process. It effectively mandates visibility. As Stuart went on to point out, this can be useful not only to ensure that plans actually reflect what the business needs, but to loosen up tight budgets by forcibly directing the intention of the business to potential gaps in the plan. But the other good thing is that it then comes back and forces you to double check that what you've done is suitable for the company. So it says you've got to have some form of review at senior management level to say that yes, what's happened is correct, and it satisfies our requirements, and it's actually fit for purpose. I think you were asking me about the return of investment on testing. Well, this is one way of actually demonstrating that it's got a useful return of investment because they'll look at the test scope, they'll look at the outcomes, they'll look at the failures within the test and, and see an action plan against it and say, that's okay, or no, it's not okay, I don't think that's moving quick enough. And therefore, it means that senior management have a clear sight and can either reprioritize activity or provide funding where maybe funding wasn't available through a general budget. So, we've come to the end of the episode and the end of the series. I've tried to keep things as simple and accessible as possible throughout the podcast, and it was a real challenge to explore compliance meaningfully without getting too lost in the finer details. But I hope there were some useful bits in there. You don't need to certificate with standards in order to operate resiliently. Good continuity practices aren't dependent on regulatory standards, and vice versa. 
If you'd like to find out more, several contributors recommended people go to the Business Continuity Institute's Good Practice Guidelines, which serve as a kind of companion document to ISO 22301. In a moment, I'm going to leave you with John Robinson for the final piece of advice in the series on what you can do in the next 24 hours to become more resilient. So thanks so much for listening. It's, uh, it's been a really interesting process and it's been a pleasure to share some of the really interesting recovery stories with you that might otherwise never have been heard. And with that in mind, we're about to start preparations for Series 2 of the BCP cast, in which we'll be taking a closer look at individual recovery stories and asking continuity professionals about the most significant disasters they've been tasked with recovering from and exploring how their plans held up in the moment. So if you've enjoyed the series or you have any suggestions for new episodes, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at the BCPcast, or you can email us at info at the bcpcast.com. We're hoping to launch the new series this summer, so thanks again, and I'll see you then. First thing I would do, series of steps. First thing I would do, I would build, I would make sure I've got some sort of appreciation of what I face. So I would build a little risk register. If I've got 24 hours to do it, I'd probably get an Excel spreadsheet out, I'd write down, I'd get my key people around me, and I don't just mean senior management, I mean people who understand the operation. It tends to be very, very grassroots operational, and I'd ask them what they think the main threats are to the organization. But I would spread that as wide as I could, and I'd build a genuine risk register. What I would then do is look at which of those threats, I'd, I'd, I'd like to have a feel for which are the most likely, we feel are most likely, very hard thing to do, but I would certainly try and grade them. I then want to know how good our defenses were against each one, and so I effectively downgrade them because we're well defended. So I start to now find the areas of uh, vulnerability. I would then want to know how those threats might materialise, what scenarios could arise. Once I've got my list of scenarios, I then want to know how well prepared we are to deal with each one. That simple three-stage approach is what we use. It doesn't have to be Excel, but you can use that and you can find out exactly where you are. You can see how well prepared you are. And if you, if you don't have a continuity plan at all, try and think through what you would do if each of those scenarios arose. And I think that will get you from nowhere to somewhere really quickly.